Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. So our second reading is from 1 Peter 3, verse 8 to 22. Finally, all of you, Have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. For those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them speak peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated, but in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear, so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. It is a pleasure and honor to be able to speak with you today. Uh, I count Ian and Courtney as dear friends. Uh, We went to university together, to Old Roberts, and surprisingly enough, we didn't really hang out at all during that time. Uh, And then I grew up here. This is home for me. And so when I came back after college, actually, after being in Korea for a little bit, uh, we reconnected and are better friends than ever before, I believe. And it is a privilege, and I am so grateful for their relationship and for being able to be here with you today. I've spent the last nine years in Asia, the last seven or so in Shanghai, in China, working with the international churches there, uh, planting an international church that is meant to be uh, internationally diverse as well as um, denominationally diverse. But as Ian said, I am an ordained Anglican. Uh, priest, and I did not wear my traditional vestments for you. I'm sorry for that to disappoint you. Uh, Part of that is because of the nature of my travel this time, but also partly because I wanted to wear your ecclesia vestments, the (laughs) traditional hipster attire. Uh, So I hope that I, you know, went in Rome for you. So I hope I didn't disappoint you too much. Maybe next time that I, if there is a next time, I'll I'll grace you with some, some, yes. (laughs) See how this goes. Okay. 
Uh, it is my joy to get to share with you from First Peter, and the nature of my time here, this was not a planned trip. I was originally in Germany uh, during the Chinese New Year holiday. I was intending to spend one week in Germany and return to Shanghai. Uh, as I left for Germany, it turns out that, the, as you've probably heard in the news, the coronavirus uh, became an epidemic and has uh, become a problem worldwide, but particularly in Hubei province, uh, in the city of Wuhan, which I've been to n numerous times. Uh, and this was a very unexpected uh, reaction. While being outside the country and as things have been quarantined and shut down, I thought this would be a good time to visit my family and uh, to take some time to kind of reevaluate where things are and because of quarantines, et cetera, which you can talk to me later. Things are not well, but things are probably not as overblown as you've been watching in the news. Uh, it's certainly not a, a thing to make light of, but uh, obviously it's easy to become overwhelmed or to get pandemic or just paranoid about these things. I've witnessed many who have, as soon as I tell them where I'm from, take a few steps back in our conversation uh, as if I'm infected, which is fine. And uh, so if you want to keep your distance later when you talk to me, I promise that I've coughed all over my hands, just for you. Uh, all kidding aside, I, this last three weeks that I've been outside of China, uh, which was supposed to only been five days and is indefinite at the moment, I will return, I promise you that. But uh, whether that is another week or three weeks or a month, it's uh, uncertain at the moment. But in this experience, whether it's been my waiting in Germany or coming back here through the quarantine, uh, I have realized a bit more of what it means to be in exile, to be someone fleeing or in search of a home or a land or uncertain of where they will be sleeping the next night. And I don't need, mean to make light of those who are currently refugees or immigrants or actually living in, a, in that place. But I think the last few weeks has given me a little bit of window into what that might feel like. And ultimately, I think that's helpful because I believe, as First Peter brings to light, that we as citizens and, king, and citizens of the kingdom of God and kingdom people, Jesus people, our primary setting in this life is exile, is desert, is wandering. So although you might not be meeting here next week, and in some ways that is very much akin to my life at the moment, that is the Christian story, that we are never really truly at home in any place, fully, fully involved where we are, but constantly, in a sense, in transition, whether it's from life to death, from kingdom to kingdom, from family to family. The, the, title, the title of today's sermon that I'd like to give you, I like to title things, I don't, it just gives order for no reason, but uh, it's called Fugitives to Family from Fighting to Fellowship from fugitives to family, from fighting to fellowship. The last few weeks as I've been kind of uncertain where I'm going, I've experienced a lot of different emotions, particularly uncertainty, uh, a bit of fear, a bit of trepidation, a bit of unknowing, and it has created stress, undue stress. And I'm someone who tends to bottle up the stress and just shove it down. And generally, I don't necessarily know that I'm feeling that until you know, the one day my eye starts twitching and my body is telling me that you're stressed. You're dealing with these things. So much of our reaction, so much of how we treat one another and treat others is dependent on the stress levels that we're feeling, about how we feel, whether we're in danger, at home, comfortable, uncomfortable. And you don't need much to do that. You just need to be hungry or lonely or angry or tired or not have had coffee. And you will realize that your sanctification is dependent upon your conveniences. And so much of this last few weeks has reminded me of how easy it is to respond from places of fear, places of uncertainty, with impatience, 
and it, it takes its first uh, example, or we see the first temperature readings of whether we are, sh you know, like a duck on the water, our legs moving rapidly underneath, in the words that we speak, and how we respond, in our impatience, or whether our words bring kindness, blessing, or criticism. And so much of what's happening in this chapter in 1 Peter, uh, if you remember, if you've been here for the last few weeks, as, as Ian and Courtney have been unpacking these things, speaking of what it means to be a pilgrim, to live in this sense of exile, of being a people whose lifestyles and relationships with one another, whether it's in family and husbands and wives, whether it's in slaves and, in this sense, hierarchies of class, that Jesus calls us to a subversive way of living, to reorganize all our relationships in light of God's kingdom. And these relationships are identified, whether they've been organized by the kingdom, primarily in our responses of stress, particularly stress where we've been hurt, where we've been mistreated, where we've been maligned, where we've been isolated or ostracized. All of us have felt those things, and maybe we've felt that sense of loneliness, or we use loneliness to protect ourselves. And if you remember from, I'm sure what Ian has explained, the context of this entire book is, is suffering, is First century, uh, people being persecuted, struggling to, in their faith, in this pocket of time. And so, the people of First Peter, the people of, of Peter's uh, writing, are experiencing this sense of isolation. The sense that their faith, their commitments, their life is creating friction between them and those around them. And the relationships they have are creating extra pressure and stress. And so we begin this section with Peter telling us to be of like mind, be, of, be in harmony with one another. Now, that verse, the beginning verses of this chapter, of this section, verse 8, finally, you, all of you, live in harmony, live with one another in single-minded purpose. Reminds us that in this sense of exile, in sense of being out of control of what's happening around us, as I've experienced from three different continents in the last three weeks, that it is our job to remember the purposes of God that we're called to. This isn't about us all getting along in the same room. Single-mindedness, harmony, is about understanding that our, the purpose of the kingdom outweighs our individual distinctions, outweighs our differences of opinions, and it brings us together despite the circumstances and the situations around us. So we are to embody the life, the, the love, the kingdom of God in our behaviors as it brings us together for that distinct purpose. As was said last week, that First Peter is in many ways primarily about evangelism and justice. And it's not the, to get people saved just to get them into the door. It's about seeking God's ultimate purposes and allowing God's purposes for us and for this world to outweigh the things that are pressuring us in this moment. And one of the things I've learned so well from being overseas, from being all over the world in so many different moments, is that when you are able to step back and realize the, the grandness of God and the diversity of the faith and of our own church, that perspective comes. And you're able to take a deep breath about a lot of the little things that seem so petty. And how often the things that have divided us have been knee-jerk reactions. Stresses. A few 
years ago, I was working for an, a different church in Shanghai. I was the associate pastor of an international church. I was called SWIFT, which is Shanghai West International Fellowship. There are a lot of acronyms where I am. And as the associate pastor there, I had the unique job of doing discipleship, of, of gathering our, our group for small groups and these kind of things. Some of you have probably done many of these kind of jobs within a community. And it was unique in this group of two, 300 people, I remember being quite unusual. I myself was the only person between the ages of 20 and 40, the only single person, the only uh, American of that age range and all these things. So I stood there as an anomaly in my church. Uh, almost everyone was either a teenager or married couples with, with children, and, which is wonderful. But I myself realized that I was quite different in that sense. And what I learned from those experiences is the power of forced community. Let me put it differently. The importance of learning to create community. The importance of that community is not always natural or obvious, but it takes incredible intentional work. And so from people from all sorts of countries, from Singapore to Malaysia to India to, to France to the United States to Canada and so on and different denominations, I was forced to make a family for myself, to be part of someone else's family. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this, where it's just there are not people with the same interests. There's no one there who likes the same music you do. They don't dress the same. They don't have jobs like you. But yet here you are. Your, your choice is either isolation or to listen to this conversation about tennis and to feign interest or discover interest. And I'll tell you that isolation is much worse than forced community. And in forced community, in learning to choose community, in learning to choose family, we begin to understand God's ultimate purposes that unite us, that go beyond our petty differences and the things, the stresses of this life. And it gives us the wherewithal to speak blessing when we are hurt, when we are suffering, when we've been maligned, rather than being splintered. Or fraction. There's a great anthropologist uh, of the previous century named Levi Strauss. He was uh, a Belgian-born anthropologist and Frenchman who said that humanity ceases at the border of my tribe. Humanity ceases at the border of my tribe. And what he was explicitly trying to say is that we establish very quickly on our family, our kin folk and the friends who we will treat with that kind of love. The ones who we will show the adjectives described in 1 Peter, compassion and sympathy, the people that we will walk with and suffer for and suffer alongside. And as soon as we've distinguished that, that means that the rest of those who become the backdrop of our, of our worldview, of our life, they're a bit less human to us. An easy example is uh, how we can treat uh, those that are close to us, your family, your friends here in this room, and how easy it is to treat a waiter or waitress with disregard. How easy it is if you were to go to a restaurant and one of your friends was the barista or, or the waiter and to give them grace or give them extra patience when something goes wrong in order, but how quickly it, and easy it is to become infuriated by the lack of service you're getting from someone you don't know. And it's not that we've dehumanized them to the sense of, oh, they're a slave, they're an object, but we become less sensitive to the nuances of their personhood. So what all this might seem a bit uh, 
outside of what I'm trying to say about 1 Peter. But I think as you understand that what causes us to react to evil with evil, what causes us to respond to, to our own stresses with cursing rather than blessing, is the inability to recognize that the people across the aisle from you and I are family. And I believe the failures of our world ultimately come down to divisions, us and them. The inability to recognize family, to recognize brother and sister, despite what race or ethnicity or, uh, or gender or country or language or jobs or class that are there. And this comes out because we're, none of us are obviously discriminatory. We don't, we don't get up in the morning thinking about which group of people we want, don't want to like. But it comes when we feel hurt or afraid. It comes when we're stressed out, when there's uncertainty in life, and so many things are assumed to be constants. But once those things are shaken, where we're living, our income, our families, once those things are threatened, or even our pride is threatened, the tribe begins to, to minimize. The circle closes. What Christ does in the cross is he widens the circle that there may, it may never be minimized. The cross encourages us to keep our perspective of the world wide open, to allow ourselves to, to suffer alongside and to feel and to share in solidarity all those that are struggling. Loving our enemies, loving those who mistreat us, loving those who are different to us, choosing rather to love rather than to hate or to curse and to bless and speak words of life is the primary indicator of whether we are living beneath the cross or beneath whatever you want to identify this world with. We are called to be to, to family. As the scripture goes on in 1 Peter, it begins to tell us that we should have a reasonable defense, that we should honor and revere Christ and have a reasonable defense for the hope to which we've been called. So much of this passage has been placed the emphasis on some sort of apologetics. You know, make sure you have a reasoned outline of defending your faith from all the, the liberal the atheists, etc., etc. I don't think that Peter was dealing with these kind of things. I don't think this was Peter's first context. I believe in the context of this passage, what Peter's encouraging us to, is consecrate your life. Set your heart aside that its, that its passions, its responses, its woundedness, whatever you're going to feel, and, and love and be concerned with, let it be what Christ is concerned about. Crucify your favorite injustices in life. Whatever passions you think that, that, that they, they are probably from the Lord, the Lord gifts us with, with emotions and with passions and with feelings. I'm not saying don't be passionate about things. But our, our favorite injustices are not often God's favorite injustices. Consecrate your heart to the concerns of the kingdom and give a reasonable defense, an explanation through the way we love one another. Our lives, our, our ability to identify each other as family is our greatest defense to the reality of Christ crucified and risen. Your words of kindness, your words of love and blessing in a culture of canceling is your greatest witness to the validity of Christ's lordship, not your well-reasoned argumentation. 
which has its place in our world. But ultimately, the, the life that which you live, the borders of your tribe will determine the borders and the limits of your evangelism. The borders of your tribe, of your humanity, of your humanness, will limit your evangelism. One of my favorite theologians, Miroslav Volf, says that all sufferers can find comfort in the solidarity of the crucified. Meaning anyone who's suffering, anyone who's struggling, no matter what, it's mental, physical, soul, whatever you're feeling, struggling with, whether it's from others or from within, you can find solidarity and comfort in the crucified, in Christ. But only those who struggle against evil by following the example of the crucified, by following that example, will discover that he is at their side. And I say this to you because it is so important for us that if we want to be Jesus' people, if we want to know that Christ is with us, then the borders of our humanity have to extend where there is no limits so that we might struggle and suffer with others. This is not to inflict ourselves with pain. We're not self-flagellating and getting our whips out and this. this is to bear the burdens of one another. This is what family means. What it means to be family is to share in the weight of one another's life. To share in the concerns and the tears and the joy and the laughter and the pains of one another. That's what makes us a church. Not attendance. Not our social media posts that like one another. But bearing in the weight of each other's lives and burdens sharing common destinies with each other, linking our futures together and so that what happens to you and I is similar. We share in the consequences of life together. And that is petrifying when you think about it. And it takes a step of faith. And it takes, no matter what we're feeling or how we're struggling, it takes us to choose love in faith even in the midst of a culture and life that is full of despair and full of antagonism, who says tit for tat, who believes that vengeance is rightfully the discourse of our world. Let us choose to identify ourselves with the crucified. As it says in First Peter, that we should choose good for Christ himself died for our sins, for the righteous and for the unrighteous to bring us all to God. There's, there's two examples in this passage that are a bit uh, confusing to many. There's an example of, the, of Noah's Ark and salvation and, and baptism, and there's another one of Christ going into some netherworld of prisons to preach. And without getting into the... There's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of arguments about what this all means, and without getting into the controversial sections, I want to not miss the importance of each example, which are primarily about patience, that God is patient and enduring, and that God goes into the places of darkness, into our imprisoned places to speak good news, and that it's baptismal language that brings revelation of salvation to us. So let me unpack that real quick for you, what I mean by that. God demonstrates to us a family, to those who hate him and to those who crucify him, that while we were still aliens and strangers, Christ died for us. That while we were unrighteous or righteous, depending, no matter what you've done, Christ chose you and identified himself with you, and he implores us to become family to one another in a baptismal way, allowing ourselves to die to ourselves 
and to rise with him. And what baptism means primarily in the New Testament is, is so much about initiation into family. So remember that your ability, your death into the family of God, your, your initiation into God's family brings you life. And that family means life. And that Christ created family, created us to be his family by entering into the depths and darkness of our lives and our world and even in those in-between places that we, we don't even know how, what to describe them as, where humanity seems lessened. That's something. Christ goes into this nether world where, humanity, where humanness seems lessened, where identity is lessened to bring good news. How much more so are we encouraged to follow in Jesus' footsteps to enter into the places where human life is disregarded, where it's become callous, where humanity seems weak, and to speak good news of fraternity and life and family with endurance and patience by identifying with the one who is crucified. It was Valentine's Day this last Friday. It's not a holiday I, I am too concerned with. Uh, or care about that much. It's pretty much commercialization. But uh, I do appreciate the original St. Valentine. Uh, well, whoever he was, there's several that it might have been. But in the, in the tradition, whether it's true or not, Valentine is known for, uh, for marrying people in secret. Particularly, they were Roman soldiers who were conscripted and uh, then bringing them together with their wives and marrying them in secret. And that, this was one of the things that created a problem. Obviously, if you're a... Roman military, who in that time, the military loyalty is pretty much worship. This would be controversial. But as I thought about this story, I remembered that marriage, in the Christian context, is not simply a declaration of two people's romantic love. Marriage is God creating family. Two strangers, two friends, becoming family. That family doesn't occur once you have kids. Family comes at that altar. And God creates family in that moment. And it's interesting to me that he becomes martyred by creating family, bearing witness to creating family. Today, allow our witness, our struggles, whether what, whatever we might suffer from, let it be because the bounds of who is our family, let them be too wide for the culture around us. That is what communion, which we're going to share together soon, is about. It's about recognizing that the Lord, through Christ, has called us brother and sister, our, our daughter and son. But it's also that we might look to one another and say, you're my brother, you're my sister. As Paul would say, he was the worst and least of all men of sinners. We look around at those who are also welcomed and take joy in that this table is open to all. That God's hospitality has no bounds. Samuel Wells, to quote an Anglican priest in England, said that by sharing bread with one another around the Lord's table, Christians learn to live in peace with those whom they share tables. Not just the tables here, but the tables outside here. Whether they're breakfast tables, shop floors, office tables, or checkout counters. They develop the skills of distribution of sharing their bread with the poor and with the rich. They develop the skills of equality, 
of valuing places and peoples that are differently labeled, differently gendered, differently oriented, differently in assorted races, classes that are medical, social, and criminal. The table creates new worlds for us. And what is so beautiful of sacramental life is that once we come here and we come and recognize this family, it is to open us up to see that this table can be extended anywhere. That in the midst where humanity is darkened and lessened in your work, in your family, in the middle of the grocery store, that can become a place of God's hospitality. And what will keep you from doing that is petty tribalism, but more importantly, it's being people that are afraid. Being people who the uncertainty of this world and the stresses of this life who are unable to cope with being pilgrims. Embrace this pilgrim life so that you might respond to whatever injustice or suffering or isolation you feel or experience with the good news, with an embrace, with fraternity, with opening yourself up to new and important families. And in this community, whether you're new here or been here a long time, pursue family. Love family. Open yourself up to new and unique and creative and unimaginative sorts of family, as I was forced to in Shanghai. And I am better off because of it. You know, they say it's, you don't get to pick your family, and that's why it's, people prefer their friends. But in reality, everyone is our family. And the, the family that we don't get to choose is often more important to us than those we can choose. I want to encourage you today with those words and pray that you would recognize today the depths of that. As you come to the table, do not only remember what Christ has done. Please certainly do that. But as you remember what he's done for you, remember what he's done for the person next to you, for the person across from you, for the person you might wish wouldn't be here. And if there's anyone in your mind you could even fathom as I say this, that you wish wasn't here, whether it was your boss, your aunt, your cousin, all the more reason to imagine them at this table with you. Just as this table becomes a table anywhere else, this table reminds us is a prophetic insight into the table we share in eternity one day, where all will be welcome and all things will be made new. I want to say all these things to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your, the depth of your kindness. Teach us to speak words of blessing in a culture of criticism. Teach us to pursue family over the preferred relationships that indulge our petty indifferences. Teach us to choose your life, O oh Lord, and to find ourselves willing to identify where cruciform realities exist.
Help us to speak good news wherever your image, wherever our humanity is disregarded and ignored. And I thank you again for this time and opportunity to be with you. Be present to us. And Lord, have mercy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.